It's the Bits and Pieces Podcast. Hello and welcome to Scottish Independence Podcasts. I'm Fiona McGregor and this week we have a roundup of topical clips from February 2023. Yes, I know this is the 3rd of March that this is going out, but I knocked it back a week thinking that there wasn't going to be much news in February because of half-term recess. So that worked out well. Anyway, let's get started. We're actually going to start back on the 31st of January, which seems like a long time ago now. That was the anniversary of Scotland being dragged out of the EU against our will. Some hardy souls, myself included, set off through freezing weather, lashing rain, with lanterns to walk through Holyrood Park to go to a demo that Leslie Riddick and others under the banner of Time for Scotland had organised. It was quite an uplifting event, the fact that people cared enough to mark it. Leslie's quite shrewd, I think, when it comes to getting the attention of the press cycle. Unfortunately, that means the timing of some of these things is not good for people wanting to attend. They're either at work or they've got kids, they're having their tea. They're not going to travel from far because they've got to get home again. And, you know, there's for lots of reasons. It's a different thing to the big marches, the big spectacles. However, there were some interesting speeches. So here's a flavour of the event. Isn't it strange, people, that if Brexit has been such a great success, where is the street party for the independent state that we've supposedly become? You know, where where is fizzing with Farage tonight? Where is Bend It Like Boris? He's got 800,000 quid to spend on a party for crying in a bucket, and there's nothing because nobody wants to touch the Brexit project, which is so evidently completely broken. And the significant thing for us is that it didn't take Scots seven years to realize what a bad idea it was. So we're here tonight, and we need to keep this show on the road because it's kind of parky. Can I just say that when we become an independent country, all our big events are going to be in June. is a measure of the hardiness and thronness of the Scot that you're actually here tonight papping it and particularly to our pipers who let's just say for certain reasons are probably having a colder time than anybody else on the park. (laughs) I'm Leslie Riddick, I'm a journalist, I'm part of the team of Time for Scotland that's organised this and also the Supreme Court verdict rally and we will be here every time Scotland is in the news We'll be on the streets, and thank you for backing us up. Um, Our next speaker is uh, the man who kind of coined the phrase, the lights on. Um, Alan Smith was an MEP. Uh, He is now an MP, an SNP MP. Um, He was the man who, in his final speech in Brussels in 2019, um, in a quite emotional speech that many of you will have watched, Uh, pleaded with people in the chamber to keep a light on for Scotland. So uh, he is the new Europe and EU accession spokesperson for the SNP. Would you please welcome Alan Smith. Leslie, thanks uh, very much indeed and thanks to Lights On for Scotland for the invitation. 
Uh, I'll try and keep the emotions under control tonight because if the tears go, they'll probably freeze, uh, which uh, nobody would want to see. But it's just fantastic to see so many passionate and committed Europeans in this crowd tonight. As Leslie said, where's the Brexit celebrations? Where's the happiness about all those freedoms that we've won, all the rest of that? And three years after, we left the European Union against our democratic will in Scotland. Several years after the EU referendum, what have we got to say for it? We're so much poorer, so much worse off. The UK is diminished, Scotland is diminished, the EU is diminished. It's the only negotiation in human history where everybody came off worse at the end of it. And Scotland rejected the whole thing. Scotland's democratic will was to remain within our family and nations. That's what I've been working on ever since. That's what I'm committed to tonight. Because I'll tell you what, I'm sick of hearing about Brexit. I'm sick of Brexit. I'm sick about hearing the bad news about Brexit. I'm sick of knowing on a daily basis the bad news that is affecting so many people across the people I love. And I'm sick of the fact that I didn't stop it happening. I'm still angry about where we are right now. But the people of Scotland, the people of the UK, they don't need to be told that Brexit isn't working. The shriller and shriller the rhetoric on the other side tells us that. They know fine that this is not working. Look at the IMF stats today. Look at how many hundreds of billions have been lost. Thank you, Lily. So I don't want to talk about Brexit anymore. And I'll make a promise tonight, I'm not going to talk about Brexit anymore. Let them talk about Brexit. It's their Brexit. I want to talk about the future. I want to talk about the solution. I want to talk about the answer. And that's independence in Europe. So our job as activists, and we are all activists in our daily lives, and every conversation you have, every door you chat, is to win the people of Scotland to that argument that independence in Europe is the answer to all the bad news coming out of Westminster right now. It's not a better Brexit. It's not making Brexit work. It's not a softer Brexit. I don't know if you've seen the kids' book that that's not my Brexit, you know, that this border's too hard. There's no way you can polish this jobby. <laughs> the answer is independence. We have the answer in our fingertips, and the people of Scotland, one by one, are coming to us. The momentum is with us. The energy is with us, even in a cold, dark, January night in Scotland. There's plenty of lights on for Scotland. Keep it up. Yeah. Our next two speakers are, are extraordinary. They've got no skin in this game. They're academics, they're based in Oxford. One was born in Germany, one was born in Italy. They set up Europe for Scotland. Europe for Scotland are the guys who produced those incredible solidarity rallies across Berlin, Munich, Paris, Brussels, Ireland. Last, last November at the Supreme Court rally that sent us such a buzz, if you were there then, that lifted us because we realized we're not alone. People see the predicament that Scotland's been put in. So these guys have done an incredible job managing to get all sorts of ambassadors for Scotland all over Europe ready to argue our case when the campaign begins. They work like nobody's business on this. 
poor lambs that they are, they didn't bring the right shoes and they've been standing on the grass there freezing. But that'll learn them, as my mother used to say. Would you please give a massive roaring cheer for the folk face south, um, Andrea Pissarro and Janina Yetter. Thank you, Leslie. Uh, we are very, very happy to be here today. When our train to Edinburgh was cancelled yesterday, and then the next one was cancelled too, and then the, the one following that was cancelled again, we started thinking that someone in England didn't want us to come here. But we made it! We are very happy about it, and to see all of you and this energy tonight. that we Europeans want to welcome Scotland back in the EU. Yay! And let me also name our friends at Another Europe is Possible who campaigned against Brexit and for a better Europe and who asked me to express tonight their support for Scotland's right to choose. Our campaign was also joined by some of the most significant political philosophers and democracy scholars in Europe. The ones that teach classes such on democracy that members of the UK government so clearly never attended. But dear friends, today is a sad anniversary for Scotland and for all of us Europeans who believe in democracy. Exactly three years ago, England imposed its hard Brexit on all the other nations of the United Kingdom stripping all of the citizens of their European rights. Brexit has deprived millions of citizens of opportunities to study, work, travel and trade freely within the EU. It has increased poverty and inequality within the UK whilst fostering a hostile environment for refugees. And make no mistake, Brexit and the way it was handled has drastically diminished Britain's international reputation in Brussels as much as anywhere else in the world. At the same time, Scotland is emerging from the ashes of Brexit as an inspiration for many of us in Europe. Let us tell you something. When we ask Europeans to sign our open letter, the answer is almost always, of course. But sometimes people wonder, do we really need to say this aloud? Surely everyone in Scotland must know that Europeans like Scots and would love to welcome them back in the EU. And we are here to tell you, never doubt. Europeans care about you. Europeans understand the democratic injustice that has been inflicted on Scotland. And on the day when you reclaim your place as a sovereign nation within our European family of nations, we will celebrate all over Europe your victory over Brexit. You're listening to Bits and Pieces. In the first half of February, our biggest topic of discussion was whether we would be going for a de facto referendum, and if so, would it be Westminster, would it be Holyrood, or some alternative yet to be decided? 
Inchkeith branch of the SNP held a public meeting with a panel consisting of Stephen Flynn, Stuart Hosey and Mary Black. It was an extremely well attended event. The panel had different views on which was the right way to go ahead in a plebiscite. And here's Mary Black explaining fairly graphically where she sits. Uh, my arse is sore from sitting on the fence on this one. Um, and we'll wait until the, the conference. And I'm keen to hear a lot of different ideas. But the one that sways or conv- I find most convincing about Westminster is if we were to do it in a Scottish election, Westminster's already ignoring the Scottish Parliament. What's stopping them doing it? And, and I know I can say this because I'm, I'm living it week in, week out. But see the change in the international community since 2014? It is palpable. In fact, just this week, because actually I went into my wee book, I've got the cards of five different countries, their ambassadors that we met this week, and they wanted, they invited us to come and speak with them because they want to know what our plans are because the world is watching this. The world is watching and has been watching the UK implode upon itself and they're not missing it. So when we're there saying, actually, we want something radically different, and we've thought about it as well, here's how we want to get there. That's quite a a convincing argument. And I can say, because I've been in the rooms with these people, they are listening, they are taking notes, and they are going home to their countries to explain what the Scottish situation is. So if we end up in a situation where a Westminster election, for instance, becomes the de facto, how are they going to ignore that? How are they going to convincingly stay a major player in the international world when that international world is watching them and has been watching them over the last six years erode all the good faith that they have? If anything, arguably it's a strength for us. And speaking at the same event, Stuart Hosey also had some good advice about positive campaigning and how it's legitimate to point to Westminster failings and still be positively campaigning. History is on our side. Look at the Scottish Attitude Survey over the last four or five decades. That line for independence being a minority sport to commanding majority support today hasn't stopped. It hasn't stopped. In a sense, as somebody once said to me, look, you've already won. It's just a case of waiting for the votes to catch up. I would never say that publicly. We need to work and campaign for every single vote. Which leads us to the two questions. Should we consider negative campaigning? Well, I don't think it's negative to point out the damage unionist Brexit did. I don't think it's negative to show how people are living in, in, in poverty because of the social policies, by policies of the unionist government. So there's negative and there's negative. I would never go down the personal road, but I certainly think we should be highlighting every single flaw with this union baked into the nature of it. As to the key question hidden in the middle, the six difficult questions, or is it five? Currency, we've got an answer. Pensions, we've got an answer. EU, we've got an answer. The party, to be honest, and the Yes movement collectively needs a one-pager with one paragraph on each of these 
difficult questions so that every single activist, when confronted by them, can provide a cogent answer. We've all been asking for it, not just you. Another podcast that we follow avidly is Drew Hendry's Scotland's Choice. He has some very interesting guests on and sometimes you get the inside or behind the scenes scoop on what's going on at at Westminster. In this clip, he and David Linden are discussing a short trip they made to Washington, how they were received there and the perception they had of the current state of the famous special relationship between the UK and the USA. And uh, David, what what did you think was the uh, most important thing about actually reaching out uh, to people in Congress, and not only that, but to uh, elected members from you know pretty much around the world while we were there? Well, I think one of the things that is quite overwhelming is that people have a huge amount of affection for Scotland. Um, but one of my concerns for a number of years has been that over and above the tourism, people don't necessarily have as much of a, a deep understanding of of Scottish politics. And so I felt it it was a really good opportunity for us to be there, particularly to coincide with the anniversary of Brexit and talk to people about the fact that Scotland is a radically different country from the rest of the UK. Um, Scotland is very much going on a different path from this isolationist little Britain Tory government. One of the things I was also quite struck by, uh, particularly in private meetings um, with members of Congress, was the fact that for all those the talk of the special relationship, once you get behind closed doors, folk are looking on to the current UK government uh, and, and the current constitutional setup. You are absolutely aghast at a government that seems to be going through prime ministers and chancellors at a rate of knots. That's not something that's particularly good for the United States of America that wants a stable partner here in Europe. Um, and I think the opportunity to put Scotland's case and to speak with a distinctly Scottish voice was something that we certainly welcomed uh, and those who were listening to us for, were giving us a good hearing. Yeah, I think that's really interesting, isn't it? That I think that if you were to believe what this place tells you, that there is a special bond, this unbreakable relationship. And in actual fact, as you say, once you, you dig beneath the rhetoric, it's not really there anymore. And every country acts in its own interest. And how this place can convince itself that the United States of America sees its best interest aligning itself to the UK as opposed to Europe is just it's for the birds. It's, it's, it's fanciful it, nonsense. It, it was really interesting, the point you're making there, that when we were out there, the number of conversations we had when they were saying they were quite clearly not you know, particularly exercised about engaging with the UK. Their big target was the EU. And, and I think in the context of Scotland, you know, wanting to be an independent country in the EU, that's a very important thing. Yeah, and, and where Scotland is situated strategically is, is, is hugely important for America, both in terms of defence policy, um, but also that, that willingness to be a part of the European Union um, and to see itself as a European nation. One of the things that I was incredibly struck by was the fact that the, the chances of a free trade agreement between the UK and America, I would put it literally nil. Mm. Um, notwithstanding the, the issues that, quite rightly, um, the you know colleagues in Congress have got with the, the Northern Ireland situation, it is quite clear that the, the UK has been reduced to this kind of little rump in the eyes of the, the United States of America. And I, I certainly know from having visited the States on a number of occasions that this is the, the most fertile territory that we've had in terms of getting a fair hearing on why Scotland can, should and must be a normal independent country. Yeah, I think when you caveat all of that, a normal independent country within the European Union, then you take away an awful lot of those fears that may or may not have been there 
run up to, to, to 2014. I think there was, a, there was an interesting moment where Rodri and I were, were having lunch with a, a colleague on, on Thursday. Um, and of course, we were, we were trying to be relatively diplomatic about things. Um, and uh, when talking about Brexit, he actually spoke about, oh, yes, the time that you shot yourself in the foot. Um, <laughs> and, and that's the fundamental point here, is that they can see the, the evidence of, of Brexit. I mean, the fact that of all the G7 countries, we're the only one with negative economic growth, that we're losing £100 billion a year. Uh, people in America can see that the UK has decided to take this insular route, this, this little Britain approach, and they can see from the, the points that Bruno and I were making that people in Scotland don't have don't want to have anything to do with this. And they also find it rather peculiar. This is a country that prides itself in democracy. For goodness sake, they elect local judges. They find it very, very bizarre that people in Scotland have voted for the majority of MSPs who are pro-independence. The UK government is not respecting that mandate. But I'm sure you pointed out to them that we didn't shoot ourselves in the foot. Someone else shot us in the foot. I think you can be guaranteed we pointed out. <laughs> So that was an interesting little snippet of a longer discussion, which you can get on Scotland's Choice podcast. Well worth a listen. If you're a regular listener to Scottish Independence podcasts, you'll know that last week's episode was all about ferries. And if you've missed that episode, you'll get it wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, scottishindiepod.scot, or catch the YouTube version on Independence Live's YouTube channel. Our guests were all from Orkney, so quite a lot of the discussion was about the Orkney Islands Ferry Service. So it was quite timely when a question was asked in Holyrood about a meeting between the Orkney Islands Council and John Swinney. Thank you. To ask the Scottish Government whether it will provide an update on the work of the Ferries Task Force with Orkney Islands Council. Cabinet Secretary John Swinney. President Officer, the Transport Minister and I had a useful meeting with representatives of Orkney Islands Council earlier this week. We discussed a range of matters about how best to support the Council with the challenges it faces in delivering its ferry responsibilities, and we look forward to continuing discussions. Liam MacArthur. Uh, can I thank the Deputy First Minister for that uh, answer? Welcome the meeting uh, on Tuesday. And given how late in the day the meeting was arranged, uh, welcome the fact that I think a further meeting is due to take place uh, in April. Uh, it is important, vital, I would say, that ministers remain involved in this process. And given the impact on island communities in Orkney of increased disruption to services due to the age of the internal ferry fleet, not to mention the costs and the impact uh, through higher emissions, uh, what confidence, uh, what reassurance can the Deputy First Minister offer my constituents that this is a process that will lead ultimately to a funding package that will allow the replacement of that fleet? Cabinet Secretary. I think the fact that the, uh, the work is underway should be reassurance to Mr MacArthur's constituents. I recognise the significance of the issues involved and the necessity of there being reliable inter-island inter ferries and connections for his constituents. Uh, we have embarked on the work that is necessary to explore these issues and we look forward to sustain that work with Orkland's Council. Jamie Halker Johnston. I'm um, pleased this meeting has finally taken place and that the talks were, at least in the Scottish Government's own finest ministerial techno-speak, positive and constructive. However, I'm not aware of any agenda um, being published ahead of the meeting. So can I ask the Cabinet Secretary to ensure full transparency of the discussions and so that local residents in Orkney can have confidence that this isn't just another talking shop and, or as one local councillor put it, a placating tactic. When will full detailed minutes of the meeting be publicly available and when will the agenda for the next talks be published? Cabinet Secretary. Uh, it's nice, it's nice to see that Mr Halker Johnson is able to summon up a really warm welcome for the government's dialogue with Orkney Islands Council. It really is another further. It's another. It's another 
further dissent into the miserableism of the Scottish Conservative and Unionist Party. Uh, the, um, and, uh, there is an abundance of miserableism on the Scottish Conservative benches. On if a you could answer the question briefly, so, please. Officer, as, as, as with all things, as with all things, there will be full transparency from the Scottish Government. Thank I do. you, members. I do. Members, I do. we will, I do we will hear the Cabinet Secretary. We will hear the Cabinet Secretary. We have a finite amount of time and a lot of interest, and I would be grateful if we could get through business. Cabinet Secretary. And there's a finite time that we've got to put up with the nonsense we get from the Scottish Conservatives. Uh, I simply... I simply reiterate that the Government will apply full transparency to all of the deliberations we have with Orkney Islands Council. I don't think that question ended up quite where the Tory thought it would. See, ferries are fascinating. You're listening to Bits and Pieces. So far, February has been unfolding much as we thought it might. We had Brexit issues with food shortages and the Northern Ireland Protocol still rumbling along. We were still looking at the process by which we get some independence. We're still fending off the Tories' dog whistle politics. But then, on the 15th, right in the middle of parliamentary recess, came a bombshell that I don't think anybody was expecting. Nicola Sturgeon announced her resignation as First Minister and leader of the SNP. She gave a press conference to explain her reasons, which I think were actually quite hard to take in at the time because it really was so unexpected. But listening back to it, she does explain herself very well and it seems quite a reasonable position, not to say a courageous position to have taken, I think. As a citizen of Scotland, I think Nicola Sturgeon has been a good First Minister. I think she's given Scotland a standing internationally that we wouldn't otherwise have had. She's positioned Scotland very, very firmly as a pro-European, open, welcoming country. She led us through the pandemic with compassion and empathy. She has outlasted and outclassed a whole succession of Tory desperados temporarily inhabiting Downing Street. But as an independent supporter and not a member of any political party, I also know that the Yes movement is bigger than any one individual, any one party, and nobody's irreplaceable. So I wish Nicola Sturgeon well. I thank her for everything she's done. And we look forward with interest to see who's going to emerge from the leadership campaign, which will now take place. One of the factors cited by Nicola in her speech, which we're just about to play, came down to the kind of press scrutiny and the tone of the debate. She did take some questions at the end of the speech and answered them effortlessly, as she always does. But we're not playing them because it just gave the press the opportunity to show what a pack of jackals they can come across. They really disgraced themselves. And from what we've seen of the leadership contest so far to choose her successor, the unionist media, the UK and foreign-owned media, are in an absolute frenzy of trying to stir up misinformation, lies, defamations, and yet again just highlights the fact that we do not have a Scottish media. We have the country next door and wider afield meddling in our affairs and trying to direct the conversation in a way that isn't helpful to us as a country. So having put the press on the naughty step, let's hear from Nicola herself. Since my very first moments in the job, I have believed 
that part of serving well would be to know almost instinctively when the time is right to make way for someone else. And when that time came, to have the courage to do so, even if to many across the country and in my party, it might feel too soon. In my head and in my heart, I know that time is now, that it is right for me, for my party and for the country. And so today I am announcing my intention to step down as First Minister and leader of my party. I have asked the National Secretary of the SNP to begin the process of electing a new party leader and I will remain in office until my successor is elected. I know there will be some across the country who feel upset by this decision and by the fact I am taking it now. Of course, for balance, there will be others who will, uh, how should I put this, cope with the news just fine, such as the beauty of democracy. But to those who do feel shocked, disappointed, perhaps even a bit angry with me, please know that while hard, and be in no doubt, this is really hard for me, my decision comes from a place of duty and of love. Tough love, perhaps, but love nevertheless for my party and above all for the country. Let me set out as best as I can my reasons. First, though I know it will be tempting to see it as such, this decision is not a reaction to short-term pressures. Of course, there are difficult issues confronting the government just now, but when is that ever not the case? I have spent almost three decades in frontline politics, a decade and a half on the top or second top rung of government. When it comes to navigating choppy waters, resolving seemingly intractable issues, or soldiering on when walking away would be the simpler option, I have plenty of experience to draw on. So if this was just a question of my ability or my resilience to get through the latest period of pressure, I wouldn't be standing here today, but it's not. This decision comes from a deeper and longer term assessment. I know it might seem sudden, but I have been wrestling with it albeit with oscillating levels of intensity for some weeks. Essentially, I've been trying to answer two questions. Is carrying on right for me? And more importantly, is me carrying on right for the country, for my party, and for the independence cause I have devoted my life to? I understand why some will automatically answer yes to that second question. But in truth, I have been having to work harder in recent times to convince myself that the answer to either of them, when examined deeply, is yes. And I've reached the difficult conclusion that it's not. The questions are inextricably linked, but let me try to take them in turn. I've been First Minister for over eight years, and I was Deputy First Minister for the best part of eight years before that. These jobs are a privilege, but they are also rightly hard. And especially in the case of First Minister, relentlessly so. Now, to be clear, I'm not expecting violence here, but I am a human being as well as a politician. When I entered government in 2007, my niece and youngest nephew were babies, just months old. 
As I step down, they're about to celebrate their 17th birthdays. Now that I think about it, that's exactly the age to be horrified at the thought of your auntie suddenly having more time for you. <laughs> My point is this, giving absolutely everything of yourself to this job is the only way to do it. The country deserves nothing less. But in truth, that can only be done by anyone for so long. For me, it is now in danger of becoming too long. A First Minister is never off duty, particularly in this day and age, there is virtually no privacy. Even ordinary stuff that most people take for granted, like going for a coffee with friends or for a walk on your own, becomes very difficult. And the nature and form of modern political discourse means that there is a much greater intensity, dare I say it, brutality, to life as a politician than in years gone by. All in all, and actually for a long time without being apparent, it takes its toll on you and on those around you. And if that is true in the best of times, it has been more so in recent years. Leading this country through the COVID pandemic is by far the toughest thing I've done. It may well be the toughest thing I ever do. I certainly hope so. Now, by no stretch of the imagination was my job the hardest in the country during that time. But the weight of responsibility was immense. And it's only very recently, I think, that I've started to comprehend, let alone process, the physical and mental impact of it on me. So what I'm really saying is this. If the only question was, can I battle on for another few months, then the answer is yes, of course I can. But if the question is, can I give this job everything it demands and deserves for another year, let alone for the remainder of this parliamentary term, give it every ounce of energy that it needs in the way that I have strived to do every day for the past eight years, the answer honestly is different. And as that is my conclusion, hard though it has been for me to reach it, then given the nature and scale of the challenges the country faces, I have a duty to say so now. I feel that duty first and foremost to our country to ensure that it has the energy of leadership that it needs, not just today, but through the years that remain of this parliamentary term. And right now, in a very particular sense, I feel that duty to my party too. We are at a critical moment. The blocking of a referendum as the accepted constitutional route to independence is a democratic outrage. But it puts the onus on us to decide how Scottish democracy will be protected and to ensure that the will of the Scottish people prevails. My preference of using the next Westminster election as a de facto referendum is well known. I've never pretended it is perfect. No second best option ever is, nor that there are no alternatives. That is why I've always been clear that the decision must be taken by the SNP collectively, not by me alone. But I know my party well enough to understand that my view as leader would carry enormous, probably decisive weight when our conference meets next month. And I cannot, in good conscience, ask the party to choose an option based on my judgment, whilst not being convinced that I would be there as a leader to see it through. By making my decision clear now, I free the SNP to choose the path it believes to be the right one, without worrying about the perceived implications for my leadership and in the knowledge that a new leader will steer us, I believe, successfully on that path. Now, there are two further reflections that have 
weighed in my decision. These, I suppose, are more about our political culture and the nature and impact of the dominance and longevity that come from success in politics. And the first I hope my party will take heart from. One of the difficulties in coming to terms with this decision is that I am confident that I can and would lead the SNP to further electoral success. We remain by far the most trusted party in Scotland. And while for every person in Scotland who loves me, there is another who, let's say, might not be quite so enthusiastic, uh, we are firmly on course to win the next election while our opponents remain adrift. But the longer any leader is in office, the more opinions about them become fixed and very hard to change. And that matters. Individual polls come and go, but I am firmly of the view that there is now majority support for independence in Scotland. But that support needs to be solidified and it needs to grow further if our independent Scotland is to have the best possible foundation. To achieve that, we must reach across the divide in Scottish politics. And my judgment now is that a new leader will be better able to do this. Someone about whom the mind of almost everyone in the country is not already made up for better or worse. Someone who is not subject to quite the same polarised opinions, fair or unfair, as I now am. The good news, as the country will now get to see more clearly perhaps, is that the SNP is full of talented individuals more than up to that task. My second reflection is related. You know, I feel more and more each day now that the fixed opinions people increasingly have about me as I say, some fear, others little more than caricature, are being used as barriers to reasoned debate in our country. Statements and decisions that should not be controversial at all quickly become so. Issues that are controversial end up almost irrationally so. Too often I see issues presented and as a result viewed not on their own merits, but through the prism of what I think and what people think about me. I've always been of the belief that no one individual should be dominant in any system for too long. But while it's easy to hold that view in the abstract, it is much harder to live by it. With this decision, I am trying to do so. Indeed, if all parties were to take this opportunity to depolarise public debate just a bit, to focus more on issues than on personalities, and to reset the tone and the tenor of our discourse, then this decision, right for me and I believe for my party and the country, might also prove to be good for our politics. I certainly live in hope. You're listening to Bits and Pieces. So as Scotland comes to terms with uh, the fact that we're about to have a new First Minister, down in Westminster, they'd come back from their half-term break and it was pretty much business as usual. At Scottish Questions, Speaker Lindsay Hoyle delivered for him a very unusual rebuke when Governor-General Alistair Jack sounded like he was trying to filibuster the rest of the time allotted, which would have been a good idea if he could have pulled it off because the answers he gave to actual questions were pretty woeful. Here's a selection largely around the UK retained law bill 
which, as you'll remember, is the Brexiteers bonfire of the legislation that has got tainted by some connection with Europe, even though it could cause huge practical problems, particularly in areas of devolved responsibility. Regulated economy in the world, encouraging prosperity, business, innovation and entrepreneurship. Can I just say, Secretary of State, Scottish question is short enough without taking all of the time. Oh, Martin Doherty, who's hogging the time. Thank the Governor-General for that long-winded response. Uh, the Economics for the Environment report has calculated that lower standards in just the areas of chemical regulation, water pollution, air quality and protection of habitats will cost the British Government £83 billion over the next three decades. Does the Secretary of State believe it's right for Scotland to face yet another billion-pound price tag for a Brexit it didn't vote for? Yeah. 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 I don't resp- recognise that analysis, Mr Speaker. The, on the environment, we are respecting standards. We're increasing standards. On the areas that are devolved, we respect that, and the Scottish Government are able to deal with those matters under retained EU laws they see fit. And where, the, where there's overlap, we have frameworks and we will work together. Uh, thank you, Mr. Speaker. Uh, utter drivel, I think, is the parliamentary <laughs> term. The, the Royal Society for the protection, uh, Prevention sorry, of Accidents has warned that EU retained law bill threatens not only economic harm, uh, but that weakened safety standards on construction uh, and other work site r- sites risk the loss of life and limb uh, and may as well have the motto saving time and costing lives. So, how many Scottish workers' lives? Does the Secretary believe are worth a worthwhile price to pay uh, for his Brexit race to the bottom? Yeah, yeah. Serious day. Well, when it comes to uh, utter drivel, Mr. Speaker, it shouldn't be a competition. But, but the, the honourable member takes it to a new height. I mean, what what a, what a, what utter drivel that that is. Workers' rights are entirely protected. In fact, they're being enhanced by this government, and they are not dependent on EU membership. Yeah. Thank you, Mr Speaker. The negative impacts of Brexit are already visible, with food prices up 6%, and a third of companies which formerly exported to the EU giving up due to customs paperwork, and that includes companies in my constituency. Does the Secretary of State not recognise that it's Brexit which is causing more red tape for businesses, and that diverging from EU standards further under this uh, much-criticised bill will simply exacerbate trade fi- friction with the continent further. Here, here. Thursday. Well, Mr Speaker, no, because I believe that we have, uh, A, we have a, a comprehensive uh, trade agreement with the EU, and we are working out and ironing out the problems. We've been very successful in doing that. We did it particularly with the fishing industry. But we have in front of us huge opportunities, not just the trade deals with Australia, New Zealand and others, but also the comprehensive and progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership, which will be almost half the world's trade, and it will be a huge opportunity for Scotland's food and drink industry. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. DEFRA alone has identified over 1,700 pieces of retained EU law, with the majority in devolved areas such as agriculture, forestry and fishing. What happens if the Scottish Government wants to maintain some EU standards his party wants to ditch? Does he think it would be right for UK ministers to change regulations in devolved matters without consent? How does that respect devolution? Well, Mr Speaker, I'd say to the the Honourable Lady, 
that we're working constructively and collaboratively with the Scottish, with the Scottish Government on uh, these retained EU laws. We have offered whether we have agreement, and it's a, a, a cross-UK piece of policy, where we have agreement, we will legislate on behalf of the devolved administrations. Where it is uh, in, in the devolved area, we respect that, and we will allow the uh, Scottish Government to do as it sees fit in that area. And, and if it wants to remain uh, in line with EU regulations, it can. And there is a there is a rule, REUL, Retained EU um, Working Group, uh, for the bill, and their officials have been on that since March 2022, and we're making good, steady progress. Dr Whitford. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. But because of the Internal Market Act, goods made in the rest of the UK can't be kept out of Scotland, even if they don't meet future Scottish standards on quality, safety or environmental impact. So does he recognise that the combined effect of both pieces of legislation will drastically increase the degree of direct rule by Westminster and drives a coach and horses through devolution? Well, it's not, that isn't true, uh, Mr Speaker. It, 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 we are respecting de, de, we're respecting the devolved settlement. So if you take precision breeding, for instance, gene editing, it's the case that the Scottish farming industry, the National Farmers Union of Scotland and all other farming unions in, Scotland, in the UK want to be part of that bill, but we have respected the Scottish Government saying they don't want to be part of it. They want to, their dogma desires them to be, carry on with the EU. Meanwhile, up in Holyrood, the question of whether to give legislative consent to the EU retained law bill was being debated, and here is Angus Robertson's summing up of the debate. Thank you very much, Presiding Officer, and, and sincere thanks to everybody that took part in this uh, short debate. Uh, can I just briefly uh, feedback on, on those contributions, if I may? Uh, Claire Adamson, the convener of the Constitution uh, Committee, highlighted the overwhelming strength of evidence to the committee about uh, how damaging this legislation is. Um, Donald Cameron from the Conservative front uh, bench suggested it was premature to decline legislative uh, consent. I would have to say to him, though, that given everything that we know, uh, about this bill so far, and indeed the evidence that's been presented to the committee, I do not agree with him that this Parliament should give the UK Government a blank cheque to continue. Um, he uh, called on the UK and Scottish Governments to work together, uh, ignoring the fact that the UK Government has ignored all amendments supported by the Scottish and Welsh Governments. Again, a reason why, even at this late stage, they should uh, reconsider their opposition to granting legislative uh, consent. Sent uh, to Sarah Boyack, who began her contribution by pointing out in an eminently sensible way uh, how an alternative course of action could have been proceeded with were there pieces of retained EU law in the statute book that needed to be sunsetted in any way, perfectly um, able to have done that. But what the UK government has done is they've turned the whole process on its head, forcing every single piece of European legislation devolved, reserved and in between uh, to face uh, sunsetting. And can I say I, I very much welcome uh, the uh, opposition of the Labour Party to giving legislative uh, consent uh, to, to Willie Rennie and the Liberal Democrats a party that now accept and are prepared to live with Brexit. Um, can I say to him, as I have said to him before, when he uh, appeals for the Scottish Government to work with the UK Government on matters, I have. I have written repeatedly to the UK Government on this. We have published uh, amendments uh, which are supported also by colleagues in the Welsh Government, none of which, none of which have been accepted. To, so to suggest that there's a 
an, an issue of equidistance in critique which he was making in his contribution I reject and notwithstanding that I welcome the uh, support by the Scottish Liberal Democrats to withhold legislative consent uh, today. Um, may I just uh, draw attention to a number of things in, in the short time that I have uh, left presiding uh, officer. In terms of questions such as won't Scottish ministers get powers to preserve and amend uh, uh, retained EU law and therefore the concern of UK ministers acting in devolved areas without consent is overstated. Uh, no, it's not. The bill does give devolved ministers powers to preserve, revoke and amend uh, rule, but UK ministers are able to revoke rule in devolved areas at any time, even prior to and even after the 2023 uh, sunset, with no requirement no requirement for consent. How can we possibly grant a blank check to the UK government in these circumstances? Moreover, only UK ministers have powers to extend the sunset date uh, to 2026. So the balance of power is unequal. All of this, all of this could have been solved. Could have been solved in the House of Commons, could be solved in the House of Lords at this present time. If the Scottish Conservative and Unionist Party was prepared to go um, uh, and uh, make the case to the UK government, who knows? Maybe they might be listened to, but we heard none of that, none of that from the Conservative benches uh, today. On the issue of timescale and decision-making, something that Sarah Boyack has raised repeatedly, and rightly so. She is absolutely right in this. No preservation or other instruments can be made under the bill unless and until it has received royal assent as an enforce, which is expected to be around May 2023. Once this has happened, the Scottish Government would intend to lay secondary legislation to seek to ensure that laws are not lost at the end of 2023. And I would be content to come back in a further and extended debate to talk through how that may work and, and hopefully provide the assurances that Sarah Boyack requires. I'm happy to give uh, very way briefly. briefly. Can I say, as soon as we can get that, that would be very important. And if you could refer, sorry, if the Cabinet Secretary could refer to the references in the SEAC committee report, that would be very helpful. Cabinet Secretary. Absolutely and happy to, but I'm sure Sarah Boyack does understand that we're still in the middle of a process of trying to understand the course of action being pursued by the uh, UK Government. So as soon as we have clarity on that, we're trying to work with them uh, to understand how things will proceed, we'll be able to come back to Parliament. I wish to be able to do that as soon as possible. Presiding officer, I mentioned in my opening remarks that since 2018 this Parliament has been ignored on six occasions when voting to withdraw, withhold consent to a UK Government bill. Regardless, I urge members to vote in favour of the motion today to agree with the recommendation to withhold consent for this bill. The UK Government may not be listening, but the people of Scotland are. Workers whose employment rights are at risk because of this bill, they will hear. Consumers who want higher food standards, they will hear. Those who benefit from and value the high quality in the Scottish environment, they will hear. And business wanting to avoid even more barriers to accessing the European market, they will hear too. Presiding officer, I urge this Parliament to add its voice to the already loud chorus from across Scotland and the United Kingdom who are opposed to this bill and vote in favour of the motion. Thank you very much. Angus Robertson there, stating his case somewhat more eloquently than the Governor-General managed. And indeed, the motion was passed. So the Scottish Parliament has withheld consent. As Angus pointed out there, we've had that ignored on the last six occasions. Will this be the seventh? Almost certainly. It seems that once you breach a convention once, it becomes easier to do time after time. 
It'll be interesting to see if the same thing holds true of Section 35, which, as we know, was used for the first time ever to halt the GRR bill. And I would be willing to bet that this next topic that we're going to move on to is also going to have the same fate befall it. It's what should be a no-brainer, a deposit return scheme. Most of us are old enough to remember when we took lemonade bottles back to the offie and you got thruppens or whatever it was. I can't remember what the going rate was. But there are successful deposit return schemes all over Europe. Germany's got a really good one. Norway, of course, has got one. There's absolutely no reason why Scotland shouldn't be able to get one, except they want to make sure that we don't get ideas above our station. You can see the Tories trying to attach the same dog whistle response to deposit return scheme as they have done with ferries. Here's the latest update from Lorna Slater on where they've got to. To ask the Scottish Government whether it will provide an update on a deposit return scheme. Minister Lorna Slater. Circularity Scotland is now at an advanced stage of building the infrastructure and logistics network that will underpin the scheme. Sites have been secured across Scotland to handle and process material. Counting equipment and vehicle fleets are arriving. Recruitment is underway to recreate 500 new jobs in Scotland in processing and logistics. Likewise, businesses of all sizes are continuing to make good progress as they prepare for launch in August of this year. Deposit return is a transformational step change on our road to net zero, and businesses here in Scotland have the momentum needed to get us there. Donald Cameron. Um, Small producers in the Highlands and Islands, especially craft brewers, including Fine Ales and the Glen Spean Brewery, are deeply concerned about the many unanswered questions that remain about DRS, including how the contractor BIFA will collect materials from rural and remote locations that are hard to reach. Given these legitimate concerns, why won't the Minister pause the introduction of DRS until these matters have been fully resolved, or at the very least, grant smaller producers a grace period before joining the scheme? Minister. Uh, I thank the member very much for the question. I take the concerns of small producers very seriously. And this week, Circularity Scotland announced a package of measures to specifically answer some of the pro- uh, concerns raised by small producers in terms of cash flow and labelling. The process of the organisation and logistics is a matter of co-design between businesses to ensure, and, and BIFA, the logistics partner, to ensure that it works for everybody. And that will be going forward. And I will be meeting with producers, small producers again this afternoon to find out what else we can do to support them. Fiona Hislop. While I welcome recent changes on fees for small drink producers and other improvements to the planned rollout of DRS, some businesses in my constituency are still concerned about implementation at a time of other serious economic pressures and have practical concerns about storage space and cost pressures. Although the aims of DRS are understood with widespread acknowledgement of the need for it, does the Minister recognise this continued uncertainty and how is she planning to address this and what practical changes has her very recent meetings with industry produced. Minister. I understand that implementing DRS is a big change to manage, particularly for small businesses. I've regularly been meeting industry stakeholders throughout the process. We've simplified the return point exemption process as a result of feedback from retailers, particularly around concerns around storage, and Circularity Scotland announced a package of support this week to improve cash flow for producers, which equates to £22 million of support. This was in direct response to specific asks from small producers. I will continue to meet businesses and listen to them and later today I am meeting with a group of small producers. Mark Cruskell. 
Thank you. Can I ask whether the claim made by some MSPs that operating curbside collections along DRS would be unlike any other country in the world is accurate, and how the Minister would like to see councils respond to DRS? Minister. Uh, thank the member very much for the question. Those claims are indeed inaccurate. Many countries operating a deposit return scheme also have curbside collections, including Norway, Germany, Croatia and Iceland. Our scheme will mean that local authorities will have less waste to handle, as well as reduced litter and associated clean-up costs, which is good for residents and good for council budgets. We are supporting local authorities to prepare for the introduction of the scheme, and our £70 million Recycling Improvement Fund is supporting councils to modernise recycling services. There's a good article on the deposit return scheme in the Orkney News as well this month. If you subscribe to that, if not, you, you can see it in our public chat channel on our Discord. So just to finish off what has been an extraordinary month, we'll drop in at PMQs at Westminster, where Stephen Flynn has a very good question about the price of gas. We now come to the leader of the SNP, Stephen Flynn. Yeah. Mr Speaker, wholesale, wholesale gas prices have fallen by 75% since their peak. Yet in just a matter of weeks, the British government, the Westminster government, intends to increase energy bills by a further £500. What would motivate a Prime Minister to do such a thing? Mr. Mr Speaker, what we are doing is providing tens of billions of pounds of support for people with their energy bills, particularly the most vulnerable. What we're also doing, uh, opposed by the SNP, is to invest in producing more homegrown gas here in the UK and the North Sea. But I would say to the Honourable Gentleman, as one of his own, I, I saw, one of his own members of Parliament said this week, that if the SNP were a pizza company, their products would be slow, wrong and costly. <laughs> I would say to him, it's time to focus on the issues that matter to the people of Scotland, and producing more energy is absolutely one of them. Stephen Flynn. I'm not sure that inferring that energy bills, Mr Speaker, don't matter to the people of Scotland is a winning strategy for this Prime Minister. But let's get real. The fact that wholesale gas prices have fallen by 75% means a windfall to the Prime Minister and the Chancellor of around £15 billion. So what they're saying as it stands is that they intend to raid the pockets of ordinary Scots whilst lining the pockets of Westminster. Mr Speaker, it's time to set aside. It is time to set aside any notion of an energy price increase to instead protect households and perhaps reduce bills by £500. Does he not agree? So despite all the political upheavals of this month, situation normal at PMQs, Sunak continuing the myth that Scotland is somehow not producing enough energy despite us being self-sufficient and exporting our excess down south whilst being charged the highest rates in the UK to access the grid. And if we're comparing governments to pizza, let's just say that wishy-washy Rishi's slice would be cheesy, greasy and generally bad for our health. So on that withering note, that's the end of February's Bits and Pieces Roundup. We'll be back at the end of March to see how the leadership campaign shaped up and take it from there. Thanks for listening. Bye now. You've been listening to Indie Jigsaw Bits and Pieces. I'm a